You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, I chat with Dave Zwiebeck, head of the engineering at Next Big Sound and CTO of Lotus Outreach. Dave is the author of a new book, Beyond Blame, Learning from Failure and Success, that outlines an approach to make postmortems not only blameless, but to turn them into a productive learning process. We talk about his book, The Framework for Conducting a Learning Review, and how humans can keep pace with the growing complexity of the systems we're building. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Radar Podcast, Dave. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we're here today to talk a little bit about your book that just came out, but let's start with a little bit about you, your background, and what you're up to now. Sure. So I've been working with large-scale complex systems for almost two decades now. And of course, those uh, systems include people and organizations and so on. And so uh the initial 15 years of my career have been spent mostly in and around Wall Street here in New York. And the last five have been in the startup world. And um, so I have a, a good mix of uh, a number of um, extremes, if you wish. Yeah. The really, really behemoth-sized companies and the really tiny ones. And um, I'm really enjoying being part of the smaller uh, end of the spectrum, the more sort of human-sized companies. And where would you say uh, you've encountered the biggest data problems? Or are they kind of the same same problems, different environment? Well, certainly, uh, when you add scale to anything, uh, it, bec- it becomes sort of its own problem. Meaning, like, let's say you have, you know, just a single computer, right? The mean time to failure of a hard drive or a computer is actually fairly uh, lengthy. But when you have 10,000 of them, or 10 million of them, you know, you're having tens, if not hundreds of failures every single day. And uh, so that certainly changes how you go about designing uh, systems. Whenever I say systems, I also mean organizations. To me, they're kind of not really separate. Right, right. And you've done quite a bit of writing on postmortems over the past few years. Um, What brought you to the realization that the process needed to change? Was there a specific moment or turning point for you? There isn't really a, an aha moment or anything. It was a kind of a slow ruling process. Um, so as I mentioned, I, I spent a bunch of my time in fairly large scale organizations and I've witnessed and I've been part of a significant number of outages or kind of issues. And so I've seen how dysfunctional organizations dealing with failure can be. And by the way, when we mention failure, it's important for us not to forget about success right. because... All the things that we find in in the default ways that people and organizations deal with failure, we find in the default ways that they deal with success. It's just a kind of mirror images of each other. So in the failure situations, we usually blame folks for, you know, causing supposedly some kind of an issue or an outage. Whereas in the success failure, we worship and we praise and we reward mm-hmm. the people that supposedly caused that success. But it's actually the same phenomena because what we what we're reaching here as humans is for uh, a very simplistic account or story about what happened. And to the extent that it feels comfortable to us, then this is essentially the extent to which we think that story is actually true. And this is actually not me saying this. This is Daniel Kahneman, the the fellow who won the Nobel Prize in uh, behavioral economics. Right, right. For his work, you know, discovering cognitive biases and the irrationality of the predictable irrationality of humans. To answer your, your, the question that you asked earlier, 
was there a sing- single point? There wasn't, but there was just a bunch of experience with how, uh, as I mentioned, sort of the default way of dealing with failure and success. And after a while, starting to feel a little uncomfortable with like, well, that that's an interesting story and it feels good, but it doesn't seem to actually describe the complexity that I see and that the people that work in these systems see. And then, of course, came in contact with uh, John Alspa, who has been bringing, you know, this work of human factors and resilience engineering um, into our field, which is, you know, large-scale web operations, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of collect. And I started to research uh, sort of on my own, inspired very much by John, but, uh, you know, digging more into cognitive biases, digging more into stress and the effects that they uh, have on the way that we deal with, uh, especially failures. Mm-hmm. And so the most recent thing that you've published on this topic of postmortems is your book, Beyond Blame, uh, which is recently published. What led you to write this particular book? So this book is different from everything else that I've written before in that it's a fiction book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and though, interestingly, uh, everybody who sort of has reviewed it, one of the most common comments that they make is that, uh, oh, that that reminds me of they will tell me about a situation that they were in, which is, happens to also be in the book. And um, so it kind of hits home for a lot of folks that have been working in, in, um, in these kinds of situations for a while. Um, I wanted to write a book that actually introduces a lot of these concepts that we mentioned. And broadly speaking, I'm talking about cognitive psychology, organizational psychology, resilience engineering, human factors, and so on. Um, and I wanted to give folks an introduction into all those fields without overwhelming them because each one of these fields, you know, is as deep as they go pretty much, you know, the, um, folks have been studying this for 25, 30, 40 years. And, uh, I also am a very pragmatic person and I wanted folks to kind of have a story that they can sort of go through and hopefully connect to and walk away with the realization that like, this is really hard to do. It involves what you might call organizational change, but it is possible to go from sort of the default behaviors that we have around failure, uh, the blaming and the biases that would be affected by normally to something that overcomes the blame and also starts to deal with the biases that that, that come up. Mm -hmm. And so it's meant really as an introductory sort of piece. Very much so. It's a short book. It's just one story. And it's very, it's, it's sort of in the style of the five dysfunctions of the team. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, you know, the author of that book, Patrick Lincoln, you know, he, he's reviewed the book and he, he sort of, uh, he commented on the fact that uh, the book, my book basically goes to the heart of some of the most common things that he sees in teams that derail teams, which is the blame and the biases. Um, and so unwittingly, I, I wound up writing sort of a, a business or, or an organizational health book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's kind of where I think the if if we actually want to impact our organizations, um, this is where we have to work. This is the field that we have to work in. Right. And why did you choose a fictional narrative format as opposed to a more academic instructional approach? Well, for one, I'm not an academician. Um, and you know, unlike folks like John Allspaugh, who went, went ahead and get, uh, got a master's. Right. Very <laughs> recently. Yeah, very recently. He's been encouraging a bunch of folks to do that. 
Um, and unlike the folks that have made careers out of this, you know, um, I'll mention some of them because I'm sort of standing on their shoulders here. You know, folks like David Woods and Sidney Decker and Daniel Kahneman and Gary Klein. You know, I'm not an academic. I, I work for a living. That's my dirty little secret. <laughs> so, so I wanted something that would be a lot more condensed and a lot more usable. And, but it is very much based on the research that I've done in, in, in these fields and the work of the folks that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And it takes place in the finance world as well, which you've got quite a bit of experience in. Yeah, very much so. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I spent the bulk of my career in finance. And what what it, it's not so much that finance uh, is it, 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 that what I've written sort of only applies to finance. Right. It's just in finance, everything seems to be kind of amplified, both the scale of the potential rewards, the scale of potential failures, you know, and also the scale of the systems. So that's why I chose to write about that field. Right. One of the first times I, I heard about blameless postmortems was actually in a conversation with John Alspa. And in Beyond Blame, you take this a step further, calling the process a learning review. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of language in these situations? Sure. So uh, there was a researcher at uh, Lund University who uh, wrote a paper called Language Bias and in Accident Investigation. So he kind of talks very specifically about this. And essentially what she did, uh, this researcher, her name is uh, Krista Vessel, if I remember correctly, she looked at a guide of the U.S. Forest Service Serious Accident Investigation Guide, right? So it's like, how do you conduct a review of a pretty bad uh, incident somewhere in the forest, like a forest fire, right? And she basically said that the language that was used in the guide makes it impossible to have an objective review of what happened. So this basically speaks to why it's important for us to call these things learning reviews and not postmortems. Um, the other thing is postmortems, when we talk about postmortems, we, we say like the, the, the word death is in a postmortem. And that's most of the time, uh, luckily, especially in our field, n- not the case. And so learning review in the name, even learning review, our point is that is to learn, right? And we can learn from both failures and success. Mm-hmm. And if we're only learning from failures, which is the, what the current practice of postmortem is sort of focused on, then we're missing, like, most of the time, things like don't fall out of the sky, you know? Right. And so if we're only focused on learning from situations when they are, then we're missing this basically the other 99% of the time when, when, they're, when they're not failing. Mm-hmm. So uh, the practice of learning reviews allows for both learning from both failures and successes. The second thing that in the current practice of postmortems, there's a real focus of well, what's the root cause? You will hear this. And sometimes, you know, postmortems will have kind of variations, sometimes called root cause analysis or the five whys, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And all those basically get to like, the point is to hurry up and get to something that we can fix, which a lot of times is a person, right. uh, unfortunately. Um, so, in the, in the practice of learning reviews, and of course, this is also present in the, the so-called blameless postmortems, right? We don't focus on a single root cause. We focus on kind of a, a bunch of conditions. Mm-hmm. And that comes not out of anything other than the realization of the complexity of the systems that we work with. In the current practice of postmortems, we talk about accountability, but really what what that version of accountability means is who are we going, whose throat are we going to choke? Who are we going to punish, right? It's like an account in this 
in this framework, in the, in, the, in the postmortem framework, is something that a person settles, right? And so the punishment has to be proportionate to that person's transgression, so to speak. In the learning review, uh, we go beyond blame to achieve real accountability. And what real accountability means in this framework is that the person is compelled to provide an account of what happened. So in this framework, uh, in the learning review framework, an account is something that you provide. And in fact, so this is the reason why we talk so much about blame, because if there's blame or there's punishment, then you're not going to get the full account and that you really cannot fully hold people accountable. Right. And so that's the reason why we try to remove blame. Um, and then, of course, you know, biases, we, we try to really, at a group level, uh, to, to get folks to understand what biases might come up in those kinds of situations. And those are things like hindsight, outcome, bias, et cetera. And to be aware of them and to kind of, as a group, be able to overcome them. Mm-hmm. So that's the basic, and, you know, one of the things you could say is that like, well, that's basically like you just sort of put the blameless in front of postmortem and then you sort of get the learning review, right? And, you know, on some level, yeah, and I'm not that attached to the nomenclature, to the what you call it, as long as you do it. Um, but as we mentioned before, language is, is very, very important. Mm-hmm. And I feel that the current practice of postmortems, is, it has all this baggage right. associated with, you know, single root cause and blame and failure and only kind of learning from failure, but on the surface level. And so it feels to me like it's a good time to just give that up altogether, you know, like forget blame less, just go beyond blame. Right, right. Yeah, the positive language having more of a an effect on the context and setting the mood for the situation. Very much so. And at the very end of the book, you lay out a framework or some steps for conducting a learning review. Can you walk us through those? Yeah, sure. And the, you sort of perfect uh, segue into it because you, you, you mentioned setting the context, right? Yeah. And we start setting the context by calling it something different. Um, and the next thing that, which is the learning review. So it reminds people that, ah, okay, we're here hopefully to learn. That's the whole point of a learning review. And so the next thing that we do is uh, essentially set the context for what we are sort of about to do. Okay. And how do we set the context? We actually have to sort of repeat these things almost every time we conduct, you know, a learning review. The first thing we say is that the point of being here is to learn. The point is not to blame or shame or demote or fire or punish anybody here. And this is probably the most radical thing you can say in some organizations because there's, a, there's still a very shallow understanding of like, if something happened, something good happened, then somebody uh, should be praised or, you know, somebody should be rewarded for that. And if something bad happened, somebody should be, uh, you know, punished for that. Mm-hmm. We still, we still like, that's our default way of thinking about the whole world, more or less, which in, in this approach, uh, we try to go beyond. So we have to remind people at the very beginning of each learning review that, hey, nobody's going to get fired over anything you say here. The second thing is we remind people about complexity, that we do work with complex adaptive systems. So these are nonlinear systems. So there's no single root cause. There's not like a simple cause and effect relationship that you can establish many of the times, not all the time, but most of the time. And when we work with complex systems, we remind folks that failure is a normal part of functioning of complex systems. So this is, you know, Dr. Richard Cook and a lot of his work about how complex systems fail, you know, and we remind people that we also, in the process of learning review, uh, we not only want to learn what went wrong, but we also want to capture what went right. 
-hmm. Because even in a big bad outage, there was a bunch of things that people had done correctly or people that had, had done well that actually probably reduced the severity or the duration of the outage or whatever. Right. You know? And then we we go on. There's there's a few more things. We remind people that there is no single root cause except complexity. Uh, sorry, except impermanence. Mm-hmm. Right? I guess complexity is kind of a, a second order. Part of that, uh, right. Yeah. You know, that if we ever get to a human, like if we ever get to like, oh, Bobby or Sue is the reason that this thing happened. Okay. We're not digging deeply enough. And then we remind people that we will be inevitably under the influence of cognitive biases, you know, such as, you know, hindsight, outcome, fundamental attribution error. And as a group, kind of, um, we want people to call these things out when they, when they notice them. And so this is the kind of, you know, after a while, it gets a little bit old. It's kind of like reading the a Bill of Rights or a Constitution <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> but it is, or, you know, um, th- there's, 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 uh, there's a company that we work with in the financial services industry who's really, you know, taking this to the next level. And they, they think about this almost as a, like every participant in a, in a learning review has a bill of like a rights, you know, like Miranda rights almost. Mm-hmm. And so they approach it almost from that perspective, like unalienable rights. Right. And, which, you know, I think that's a really, it's a really positive development in that, in that sense. And then, um, so to me, that's the most important thing about this framework. Um, the, afterwards, you know, what you do kind of largely depends on the severity of the thing that you're trying to learn, whether or not it's positive or negative. And, you know, you could, there's many different approaches to that. You could build a timeline, you could do more simple kind of stop, start, continue kind of things. You could even do, there's there's a a couple of narrative techniques uh, for debriefs. And uh, there's not like a single right way to do it. And this actually, I want, I want the listeners to kind of really uh, be clear about this. Um, there's no best practice. I'm mm-hmm. not selling a trademarked or, you know, I probably make a lot more money <laughs> if, <laughs> if it were, but that, that's that again, that wouldn't be kind of realistic or that useful. And so really what, you know, we have to do here, all of us who are interested in learning more deeply is to kind of be on this journey and, discover for ourselves which are the things that kind of work for our organizations uh, and which don't. One of the things that, that you've brought up a couple times uh, chatting today and you've touched it on uh, you touched on it in your book as well is the the idea of, of reviewing successes. What what would that look like? How would those types of reviews be structured that that's something that uh, companies don't really do at this point? Yeah and I mean this is kind of classic bias kind of thing because you know, when, uh, uh, you know, we, when, when we're successful, we basically attribute those things to our own, you know, intelligence or doing things the right way and so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the funny thing is those very same actions sometimes, uh, given the complexity of the systems we work with, will result in failures. You know, so both kind of success and failure come have the same source, if you wish. Right, right. So, but if you're, if you're trying, so let's say something did go well, you know, you did publish a book that that became a bestseller or something like that, right? Well, you might want to learn how, how that happened. Mm -hmm. And so you you gather the group together and you read them the rights, essentially, to set the context. And then uh, you could build a timeline to see what happened when, or you could debrief in in a different way. You can ask like, what went well? What didn't go well? What should we try in the future? So this is like the stop, start, continue. 
kind of approach. Or, I mean, you could even just have a free form chat, you know, about like, this is what I think we did right. And that contributed to the success of whatever uh, venture or enterprise or project that we're involved in. And these are the things that almost caused us, you know, harm or a, a failure, mm-hmm. you know, those, those near misses. Right. You know, the airline industry, which is, I think, famous for it, its sort of reliability. And one of the reasons for that is because very systemically, they had been st- studying and learning from everything that happens. And those things include, of course, the big failures that you hear about, the crashes and so on, but also the near misses. Mm-hmm. And they sort of feed that learning back into the system. And over time, the system improves. And that's actually how you get to uh, where you know airline travel is the safest way to travel. Right, right. You've talked a little bit about um, accountability today as well, but how do you balance accountability with the learning review process? So I, th- I think you have like, as many people do, and I do as well, it's it's pretty uncomfortable, right? Because we all know that, you know, when something happens, especially something negative happens, we all know who was there and who did what. And that's that's the easy part to get to. Well, mm, I shouldn't say easy because if there's blame or punishment in the air uh, or, or sort of uh, a fear of it, mm-hmm. and a lot of, like we see a lot of organizations in our workshops, and this, this is a, it's, it's an epidemic. Um, so when those things are in the air, you're actually not going to get the full account. You're not going to get exactly what happened because people will hide it. They will cover their ass. They will not speak up. They will kind of omit important information or they will, you know, there's been many, we've heard about many situations where people like wipe the logs, you know, or basically uh, erase their, 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 their fingerprints, you know, like uh, try to do something so that they're not caught. Right. Now, you can get mad and kind of frustrated with, with, with those people, quote unquote, because, oh, wow, you know, they're, they're not being accountable, you know, they're not, they're not stepping up and all that. At, and the, the thing is, what you're missing at, at that point, what we're all missing at that point is that there's something in the organization that's kind of allowing that to happen or compelling those folks to do that, you know, and it is that fear of punishment, that fear of blame. And so if you want real accountability where people do come forward and say, hey, this is what I did, you know, and this is how I did it. And this is how it made sense to me at the time. This is what you really want to learn. Then you have to remove blame and punishment from the equation. You know, again, this is not some hippie kind of like, you know, can we all just get along? Kind <laughs> like <of>. kubaya. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's one of the most pragmatic things you could do. And if, if you think about... There's a couple of things you can think about here to hopefully give you. And by the way, when I say you, I also include myself in that because this is like, even though I've been researching and and sort of practicing this for several years, I often find myself under the influence of those things, right? which is why it helps to actually have people around you that will remind you about that. But there's a concept of restorative justice, which has been applied in pretty horrendous sort of situations, uh, you know, including like South Africa, sort of apartheid and so on. And that restorative justice is not concerned with punishment, right? But is uh, concerned with kind of getting the full story out mm-hmm. and repairing the community that's impacting, uh, that, that's been impacted by this action. 
Right. So that's one way you can look at it and, and sort of the, the suggestion that we remove blame or that we go beyond blame in our organizations, uh, in part ca- comes from that, from, from just culture or restorative justice. Mm-hmm. It, the other sort of lineage of removing blame and punishment actually comes from a normal uh, non-restorative or punitive justice system where in certain situations we give people immunity. Why? So that they can give us the full account of what happened. Right. And we do that sometimes with people that we know had, you know, done bad things, right? Like in mafia cases. Mm-hmm. But in those, ca- in those cases, what, what we're saying by, what, what, or what we're doing by giving people immunity is we're saying that we value the information that they provide to us more than punishing them. Oh, that's a really right. interesting way to look at it. And so I think in most of the situations that we work with, we very much value the information that folks can give us, right? Right. Than, than slapping, you know, a person on the, um, on the wrist or firing that person. That's one of the worst things you could do is fire the person who supposedly caused an outage because here's the person that knows most about that thing, that, you know, what supposedly caused the outage, and you just escorted them out the door. You just lost a bunch of knowledge. Right. Interesting. And so what, what are your next steps? What comes after the book? So in, in parallel with the book, my partner, Yuli Shinkman, and I uh, have been developing and running a workshop. Um, it's called the Awesome Postmortems Workshop. And um, we debated calling it like the Mediocre Postmortems <laughs> Workshop, but we sort of settled on, on this name. Not for good now. marketing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the just good enough Postmortems Workshop. Um, <laughs> In, in any case, and uh, so we do these things publicly. We did one at Velocity um, uh, about a month ago, and uh, we really enjoy doing them publicly. What we really love is doing them in-house, uh, and we have been doing them for companies internally. The reason for that is because when we do these things publicly, you know, you're sort of, you get a good background and tools to take back into your organization, right? Mm-hmm. But then you're sort of on your own, surrounded by people who haven't taken the workshop, who probably don't understand uh, what you're talking about. What do you mean we, we don't fire people? How does that even work? You know, and when we're able to do these things kind of at companies, we're actually able to help the entire organization um, kind of move more towards a healthier way of learning and dealing with failure and success. So that's what's next for us. And uh, yeah. Awesome. And so I want to shift gears just a little bit back into your book uh, in a different direction. One of your characters muses to himself at one point about whether systems have become so complex that humans had kind of reached the limits of their ability to understand how they function and how they break down. Are, are we approaching this scenario, do you think? Well, I mean, I think we've been at it, at that situation for the entirety of our existence. Um, and it's... I think we're just sort of kidding ourselves, right? So we build the building and we sort of expect it to last forever, right? Well, we didn't think about the earthquake, the tsunami, the tornado, the torrential downpour. It's, you get the idea, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things that sort of we have no control over and no, you can't predict, you know? So I think most of the time, you know, we live in, in a very complex universe. Now, the thing is, that universe most of the time also functions for us, more or less, you know, so we get sort of lulled into some kind of complacency or thinking that we really understand what's going on. And the thing is, uh, 
you know, so, so that's kind of on a global scale. So it is certainly possible, like, let's say if you're, if you are a mechanic and, uh, you're repairing a 1980 Oldsmobile, it's actually quite possible for you as a mechanic to really understand that, that car quite well. The reason for that is because it has a finite number of parts and it's mostly mechanical, you know, mostly. And, and it's, of course, electric and hydraulic and all that, but it's, it is something like this, the scale and the complexity of that system that we call the 1980 uh, Buick or whatever it is, is, you know, it's complicated, but we can still reason about it, right? right. And we can use our expertise to solve problems or to uh, kind of improve on, on that particular thing. You know, if you listen to, uh, what is it, car talk, the, the click and clack. Yeah, thing, yeah. You know, it's like... It's that it's that very thing kind of in action. Somebody calls and they make a noise and they say, oh, you know, my car is making this noise. And then the, the host of the show will be like, oh, right, that's the carburetor. And then you're like, oh, how do you know that? But based on their experience, right, because they've dealt with enough of these kinds of cars, they can sort of reason about the car and where the problem is. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> they can then further rely on their experience once they actually you know, see the car or, or, wh or whoever's the mechanic who sees the car investigates they can sort of analyze and arrive at the, at where the problem actually is to fix it right right so that's 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 what you might call a com complicated system uh, but when you start to talk about you know la traffic or something like or new york traffic for that matter you know mm -hmm. like our ability to really reason about what's going on and why is very severely diminished and we can create all kinds of models right but, you know like in the same you know when there's hurricanes right they're, they're a path of the hurricane the model that predicts that but you could see that how many times those are kind of wrong and when they're right that's more like chance than actually you know the, the predictions turn out to be okay uh, correct mm -hmm. so it's a very lengthy answer to your question of <laughs> do i think that we've we've reached the point where we we can't really reason about the systems um, that we run, and I think we can't. We really can't. Um, it, we continue to be like in practice. If you ask anybody who works with sufficiently large scale systems, there's always an element of surprise of like, well, I didn't know this thing was going to do that, and that's kind of a symptom of complexity. Right, and and so in the context of the growing complexity of the systems we're building, what what do we need to do going forward so humans can keep pace? Learn, learn, yeah, but learn not superficially um and that's the, sort of the whole point of the book is like what's why do we want to go beyond blame why do we want to go beyond bias because those two are the the short circuits to learning they mm -hmm. give us a very surface understanding of what's actually going on in our systems and if we're able to actually uh, overcome them or go beyond them then we can actually understand what are the conditions that are causing uh, uh our systems to function, quote-unquote, properly, and we might figure out what's causing them to, to fail, to break. Um, but more importantly, it's, it's, it's not a one-time thing. Like, we're continually, we continually have to be learning about our systems and feeding that knowledge back into uh, that system to make it more resilient. Right. Kind of getting the, the deepest possible understanding of the full picture. Yeah, exactly. Let's close today with uh, a very general question. Uh, what people or projects are you following? What are you finding personally exciting these days? The concept of organizational health is something that I've been sort of learning about and excited about. 
especially in the context of what you might call uh, self-organizing or self-managing companies or teams. So I've been reading a lot about that, that practice. It seems like there's, there's a lot of teams that have sort of naturally discovered this recently, especially sort of in the startup world. And what I'm finding fascinating is reading about places like Visa, you know, the credit card mm-hmm. network right. that are kind of organized in, in very similar ways, but at tremendously larger scales. And so I'm reading a book by the, C- the former CEO of Visa uh, called The Birth of the Chaotic Age. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct correctly. So it's like chaos and order together. Oh, um, got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm finding that he's managing to capture like my reality of working in and running a self-organizing, self-managing team. So, uh, and he did it, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. So that's pretty amazing to me. Oh, cool. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Dave. This has been fun. My pleasure, John. You can find Dave on Twitter at MindWeather. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 